So it's Easter morning, and I would say that, that actually probably everybody around us can appreciate Easter in one sense or another. I mean, who doesn't love life conquering death, or joy conquering despair, or light overcoming and defeating the darkness? These are themes that, that run throughout the biblical text, and they're themes that run throughout pretty much any good narrative um, that we might read of in popular culture today. Any good story holds these themes together of light conquer, or life conquering death. You think, I mean, obviously a Christian author, but you think of the Lord of the Rings. Sorry, that's passe now, probably from the pulpit. But um, <laughs> but you think of that story of Jesus uh, or, or of of this goodness of Gandalf and his magic overcoming Sauron in, in this great evil darkness. And there's something in us that rejoices. So there's a hopefulness to this day that we can all appreciate whatever our belief is about who Jesus is. Whatever our, our, our religious um, taste might be, there's something that we can all appreciate and enjoy. But I want to say to you this morning that, that this hope of Easter that, that the culture celebrates by Easter eggs and Easter bunnies and all kinds of symbols of life, is actually something that's, that's not vague. It's not something that we're left to kind of wonder at. And I, I think I fear that, that much of the world goes through Easter year after year after year with this kind of sense of, you know, yes, celebration, life, but we miss the kind of heart of what Easter is really about. And it's, and it's about not just kind of some vague hope, but it's about a specific person. It's about this risen Lord that we've just sung, risen and exalted one, whose name is Jesus. This is what Easter is ultimately about. This is the hope of Easter. It's only true, it's only rooted if it's rooted in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to take us this morning to 1 Corinthians 15, to that passage that we read. I think you've got it in your handout in front of you. And I want to look at Paul's reflections on the Easter event for just a moment. This is a chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul's dealing with the theme of resurrection from the dead. And in verse 20, where we're going to start, he picks up the theme of, of Jesus' resurrection and states some truths about who this Jesus is. And in this, these next eight verses, I want to pull out four things about Jesus that Paul makes clear that are incredibly important in light of the Easter event. So this is what the hope of Easter really is. It's about this one called Jesus. And the first thing that you see in verse 20 is that Paul asserts something that Christians assert and proclaim on this day around the globe. That in fact, Christ has risen from the dead. This is our basic proclamation on Easter morning. Christ is risen. <laughs> there you go. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ has been raised from the dead. So the first thing is that, that this Jesus is the living Christ. He's the living Christ. He's not like Plato or Aristotle or Martin Luther or pick your favorite great from, from, from ages past, who is a historical figure who we might admire and, 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 and enjoy their writings and their teachings. Jesus is not like one of them. Sure, Jesus actually was a historical figure. We have an overwhelming amount of evidence pointing to the, to the figure of Jesus as a historical person, um, both in the Christian writings and the Gospels that we read in the Bible, also in Josephus, the, the, the Jew in the first century who was writing about the, the events of, of Judaism in the first century. But then you can go outside of even Judaism or Christianity and look at Tacitus or Suetonius, these, these secular Roman historians who write about Christus, this one called Jesus. So yeah, he was a historical person. But he was far more, and is far more than a historical figure. But we want to kind of keep him there, don't we, in our world? For I, I think a lot of you, and especially in the city of Boston, can identify with the fact that academics like to keep Jesus as a historical figure. 
It's safer that way. We can kind of manage him and control him and kind of exude our authority over him. If we study him in these writings from the past and look at him as just kind of a historical figure. And so that's something that you see commonly in the academy, sadly, where, where theology grew out of a heart of worship and a community of worship. It's been stolen out of that context and placed into this, this dry kind of environment where Jesus is not worshipped, but he's ruled. Ruled by our minds and by our reason. You see this kind of attempt to keep Jesus as a historical figure, even among just the, the popular, just everyday person that's walking around in the city. Uh, down in Washington, D.C., about a, a year ago, or maybe six months ago, one of the churches actually went around Georgetown, which is in a neighborhood in Washington, and they interviewed people on camera, and they said, and, and they didn't tell them why they were coming up to them. They just came up with a microphone and a video camera, and they just said this. They said, who is Jesus? And that was kind of the question. And they put a, about a three-minute clip together that's on YouTube that you can see, where people just kind of respond, first kind of, at, at first, just their first reaction to that question. And more often than not, at least the clips that they cut out and show you, more often than not, I'm sure they're making a point, people say, well, he was a historical figure, but that was it. That's kind of the answer that's given. Jesus is just a good guy who lived back in history one day. He made some kind of great teachings, did some good things, but that was kind of where the story ends, and he's not, he's, he's not anything more. So this is the kind of theme that we see running throughout the culture. And it's also, though, isn't it, I think it's something that for us as Christians, that we have this tendency sometimes to keep Jesus in the past. We say, you know, we say we believe, we say we trust, we say we claim him as Lord, but in fact, we just kind of leave him in his nice corner, buried in the Gospels, buried in the Bible, between these two leather covers, and we go about our life in every kind of normal way. Well, Easter is a time of proclamation against all of that tendency in our culture, where we say Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. He's a living king, a living Lord. I love the way that, that Luke puts this in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He's just written to Theophilus the, the story of Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection. And then he's starting volume 2, the book of Acts. In the beginning of volume 2, he says, I wrote you in the first book, O Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's the phrase that he uses. Jesus began to do and teach, implying that everything I'm about to write to you about the work of the Spirit in the life of the church, in the growth of the worldwide mission of Jesus as Lord, is Jesus' ongoing, continuing work in the world. Jesus is alive. This is the witness of Scripture. This is the witness that Paul gives us here in verse 20. Indeed, Christ has been raised. And he's alive to be known. He's alive to be trusted. He's alive to be experienced. He's, he's alive to be changing our lives in the day-to-day. -day. He's not alive to be kept on to the so, off to the side, but he's alive to be known and to be, to be worshipped. This is the Christ that we serve, the living Christ. So this is the first point that Easter proclaims to us, that the Lord is risen. And that he's risen means that he, he, he changes everything about our life, day in and day out. He's alive. But he's not just alive. He's doing something as he's alive, as he's reigning. He's the rescuing Christ as well. We see this in the next section of, of this passage. In verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Christ is the rescuing Christ. And Easter proclaims the goodness of his rescue, the truthfulness of his rescue. The fact that he can rescue because the grave couldn't hold him. So Christ is the rescuing Christ. You might say to yourself, well, do I really need rescue? Isn't my life just kind of going along just fine? 
We would say, actually, no, as Christians. We'd say, no, it's not. There's, some, there's a reality that none of us can escape, and it's called death. It's universal. It's indiscriminate. It, it takes young. It takes old. It takes middle-aged. It takes people at their lowest of the lows and at their highest of the highs. Death is something that, that none of us can, can escape. And it mars the created order, doesn't it? Death always mars anything that's good. Even death at, the old, at an old age, when somebody has lived a full and, and happy life, maybe some of their grandparents have died in their old age. It's always, there's always still something tragic about it. It mars this good creation. And we can't escape it. Verse 21 says, um, For as by a man came death. The implication there is that death is something that has intruded our world. It's not native to our habitat, so to speak. It's something that doesn't belong here. And so even though some might say, well, yeah, we just live and we die, and this is all we get. This is it. Just make the most of it. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Live your life. We would say as Christians, no. No, we are not going to affirm this thing called death. But we're going to stand against it, stand opposed to it, and say this is something that doesn't belong in our world. It's something that doesn't belong. We do not affirm this because we affirm life. So how did death come in? It came in by this rebellion that was typified for us in which we all fell in Adam and Eve as a race. This rebellion from God that continues to impact each of our own hearts as we kind of run from this rightful rule and reign of our king and our creator. So it's a consequence of this rebellion as death enters. Paul talks about this in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. This is what the rebellion from God has brought for our world. And we all suffer from it together. No one is accepted. Death is a universal reality. And we cannot escape. Paul says in Romans 7, to his own wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Who will deliver me? And enter Jesus, the crucified and risen one. The crucified and risen one. It says in 2 Timothy that he abolished death. And that in Christ Jesus, he brought to life life and brought to life life and immortality through the gospel. Jesus is the one who has destroyed this universal reality of death and brought us a way of escape out of this thing that we could never escape on our own. And how did he do it? He did it by being crucified and by rising again. Now, as a young church plant, we didn't have the privilege of the lecturing, probably because my family just moved here from Washington six days ago, and so our house is chaotic. But we didn't have the privilege and the luxury of walking through the final week of Jesus' life together. I hope that we'll get to do that next year together. Where we walk through the, 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 the somberness and the sadness and the tragicness, really, of what has gone on on Good Friday. But we call it good because in his crucifixion, Jesus bore our sins in his body, as Peter says in, in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. He bore our sins in his body. By his wounds, you are healed. He deals with this issue of rebellion by bringing about forgiveness for us through his shed blood. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews describes this as Jesus has tasted death so that we don't have to. He's tasted death for everyone. It's this thing that we call substitution. Christ for us. Jesus for you. Jesus hanging on the cross on Friday for you so that you don't have to die in that same way. This is the glorious message of, of his, the first part of his saving act that's represented in his crucifixion. And then on Easter morning, we celebrate his resurrection, that he was raised, that death couldn't hold him. He's referred to as the author of life in Acts 3. Well, the author of life couldn't be held and, and grasped by death forever. And he rises victoriously from the grave. And again, Hebrews tells us that he destroys the one who holds the power of death over us. That is the devil. 
and delivers all of those from a lifelong slavery to fear of death. Jesus is the one who, who sets us free from this fear of this reality of death and provides a new way, a way that no one else could provide by his Easter morning resurrection. So he's risen. There's a victory in this morning. We celebrate the victory of Christ over all other powers and rulers and authorities. Christ reigns and is victorious. For all, and this is, it says in verse 22 that he, it says that um, as an animal dies, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then all, at his coming, all those who belong to Christ. So this, this, this death and resurrection is made effective for us if we belong to him by faith. This is the rescue that Christ has made. So he's a living Christ, and as he's alive, he's a rescuing Christ. He's rescuing us from, from our, our, our sentence to death and from our sin. In fact, he says in John's Gospel elsewhere, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die, uh, will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is the question that he puts forward in John 11. Do you believe this? He's the resurrection and the life. He creates a new way. He rescues, rescues us. But he's able to rescue. He's able to, to deliver us from our, in, from our greatest foe and to bring us out of our, our place of need. Because he reigns. And we see that this third thing in this passage, that he is the reigning Christ. The reigning and ruling Christ. Look at verse 24. It gets kind of complicated at the end of this passage. There's a lot of subjection to all things, all these other things that are going on. But the, the main thrust of this part of the passage is that Christ is reigning over all things. He says, it says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Christ is reigning over all. This Christ that we worship and praise. How does he say it at the end of Matthew's Gospel? After his resurrection, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. This is the one who reigns. Or Paul says also in Ephesians, this, listen to these verses that Paul says about the reigning of Christ. It says that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. This Christ that we proclaim on Easter morning, this victory that we see on Easter morning, shows us that he is reigning over everything in life. The irony of the guards' mocking coronation of Jesus in his last day, when they put the purple robe on him, and they put the crown of thorns on him, and they spit on him, and they, they, they said, Hail, King of the Jews. The irony, the deep irony of this passage in the Gospel text is that this is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords who reigns over all the universe. This is the one who humbly and meekly is taking upon himself the sins of us all. Who reigns not with an iron fist, but with a heart of love. This is the one that we worship and that we praise on Easter Sunday. And the fact that he reigns, let me put this just in practical terms for us on Easter, breaks us from fear. I want to put this question to you this Easter morning. What is it that, that binds you in fear? What is it that causes you all kinds of anxiety in your life? 
What Lord or, or authority or power is there in your life that creates this kind of nervousness, this, this anxiety, this anxiousness? We all have them. It perhaps it could be your past, maybe a, you know, a blemished past that you can't seem to shake. Maybe it's the future and the uncertainty of what is to come. Or, or maybe it's something that's happened, a, a, an event in your life that, that just kind of continues to rule over you. Or maybe it's your boss who's not treating you justly and fairly at work. You know, or maybe it's something as simple as, um, or even as complicated as, as an addiction in your life that you can't seem to shake. There's, there are these things, these powers. Maybe it's just the idols of our culture, whether it's money, sex, or power, that, that keep drawing you in, that keep binding you. The glorious news of the resurrection, that Jesus reigns over all things, is that he reigns and rules over all of these issues in our lives. And as the one who reigns, he can rescue us again. Not just as he's rescued us this one time, bringing us from life, from death into life. But he can rescue you again from the situation that you find yourself in on this Easter day. From those things that, that creep into our lives and hold us and bind us. Jesus is the one who reigns and has undone the authority of everything else in your life. And so that gives us as Christians a quiet kind of confidence. Not in ourselves. I don't believe in self-confidence at all. But in the one who died and rose again, this risen, reigning, ruling Christ. You see it in the witness and the testimony of the martyrs throughout the history of the church. Think of Polycarp, whether that account of his martyrdom is dubious or not. I think it's probably safe to say that it's a fair example of Polycarp before the Roman authorities, before the Roman proconsul. This is what he says when he's in the arena waiting for the beast to come and devour him. And then they just decide to burn him by the fire anyway. When the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. That is, would you say that there is another Lord? In the first century, Caesar was proclaimed as Lord. Caesar, the one who had all of the power of the known world at his fingertips. And who, who could destroy you with, the, with his command. Declare your allegiance to Caesar. What do our earliest fathers and mothers in the faith say? Polycarp says... Since thou art vainly urgent that as thou sayest I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, and pretendest not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. Another way of saying Jesus is Lord. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day, and you shall hear them. He goes on the offensive. There's this quiet, meek confidence that resides in the hearts of those who follow Jesus. Because we know that he reigns over all authority. And this is proclaimed to us on Easter morning. The resurrection proclaims to us that Christ reigns over all things. No nervous clawing, no fretful kind of worrying anymore for us. Because Christ is risen, the reigning Christ. And lastly, he's the returning Christ. He's not just alive, not just rescuing, not just reigning, but he will come again. And this is proclaimed on Easter. Every Easter celebration is always forward-looking at one level or another. Because you know why? We still experience the brokenness of this world. We talked about this the last time that I was here. But we still experience death. We still mourn. We still grieve. We still struggle with futility. We still find ourselves falling short of even our own, our own expectations of who we should be and what we should be. And we still find that we struggle in marriages and relationships with children and with parents. We still find that this world is not the place that it was meant to be. And so on Easter morning, in the power of the resurrection, we look forward 
for the return of Christ. Look in this passage. You see where it is. It's subtle here, but in verse 23, it says, But each in his own order will rise, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. That is that this is not the end. This is the beginning of the end. The resurrection is the first fruits of what will come. And so we, we wait and we declare in faith that we too shall rise again. The first fruits, this kind of first part of the harvest that's brought in from the harvest field that guarantees and shows what a glorious harvest is to come. And Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation, of this new work that God is beginning to do in the world and starting in us by delivering us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And he will finish and complete this work when he returns again. So Easter morning... We proclaim the victory of Christ and that Christ not only has died, not only is risen, but Christ will come again as we'll celebrate in the Eucharist in a moment. Christ will come again. And when he comes again, all will be made new. All will be made well. Listen to the way that the author of Revelation puts it. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. That's why the cry of the church from the end of Scripture, Revelation 22, is come, Lord Jesus. At the end of 1 Corinthians, our Lord, come, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. We're longing for the return of our living, rescuing, reigning Christ to return and make all things right. And then in that day, all things will be made well. All of our life, the mess of our life, the stuff that's happened to us, the stuff that we've done to others, all of that will be made new in some miraculous, powerful way by the power of God. And there will be rejoicing. And there will be glory in the presence of our King. So this is our message. It's not a vague, ambiguous hope. It's a hope that's rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who is alive to be known and experienced. The one who rescues us from our, our place of greatest need by his death and resurrection. The one who reigns over every authority that can bring and inspire fear in our lives. And the one who will come again and make all things new. This is what we proclaim on Easter morning. This is why we say hallelujah. This is why we celebrate. This is why we bring out the, the finest silver and we're going to have a huge brunch afterwards to celebrate this news. It's not irrelevant, let me just say. Wherever we come from, this is not irrelevant news. This is the most foundational, the most basic, the core thing of our universe that affects each one of us, whatever we decide to make of it. And I just want to say to us as a church that's getting off the ground, that we're trusting in the Lord to lead us into mission in the city of Boston, that this is our message. This is it. We have nothing else to give to Boston. We have nothing else to offer one another. We have nothing else to give the people who live in the city who are wandering aimlessly through life from philosophy to philosophy in bondage to the, to the thoughts of men and women. This is our message. There is no other message. Christ, Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ coming again. Let's praise him together for the rest of our worship. Amen.